Well, good morning. It is certainly good to have you here on Super Bowl Sunday. And um, just about the time you thought there was something more exciting going on than what was happening at church, you end up with a evacuation plan, and you find out there may even be more excitement here. But uh, this morning, our, our sermon is titled, God's Design for Church Government. Uh, last year, we explained this topic in the series from the book of Titus that started in the book of March, didn't end all the way until the, the month of July, about five months later. Uh, and we intentionally chose that series in view of these changes that we're working through right now, um, because as pastors, we believe that it's important to, to teach on and to educate on a topic um, before proposing changes. However, we do know that everyone has slept since then, uh, and so with these changes currently in view, today's sermon is a bit of a review of much of what was said in the Titus series. Now, we hadn't an- initially planned to give a, a whole Sunday morning treatment to this topic, but as, um, as people had come to us with some questions, saying, hey, could you explain this a little bit more, we decided to change the plan um, and give a little additional explanation. Now, talking about church government, I need to tell you, this is, this is an, a, a message I'm really excited to bring to you for a couple of reasons. One is it's one where God has really refined my thinking over the years as, I, as I've studied his word, and he's kind of shown me that maybe some convictions I had weren't necessarily in accord with the scriptures. Um, but the, the second reason that I'm excited this morning is that this will be our last topical sermon for a little while. Um, throughout January, we've kind of had a topical unrolling, here's where we sense God leading us as a church into this week, Um, but then next week we get to jump back into our normal practice of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, letting God set the agenda for what comes up on a given week, Um, jumping into the book of Jonah, seeing how God sent Jonah out, and God is also sending us out. Um, So that'd be really exciting next week to jump into the book of Jonah. Now, as I said, we're talking about church government today, and unfortunately, a lot of people are, are sort of apathetic towards church government these days. Um, But in reality, it's a topic that we ought to care about quite deeply. So let me frame the issue just a little bit differently and kind of try and point that out. Imagine you're talking to somebody about the American government right now, and they say to you, you know what, I don't think it really matters how our government runs. As long as we have a system in place that'll work, sure, we, we should have somebody in charge, We should probably have a process for making decisions, but as long as there's some general structure, the specifics, eh, they don't really matter at all. Well, if somebody said that to you, you'd probably think they were joking. But if they persisted and they were really serious, you would think there was something wrong with them. The details do matter. Um, now, Now, why is it in God's church, which is infinitely more important than any country, would we think that church government doesn't matter? Well, before we jump to conclusions, I would say there's at least one good reason why you might conclude that, and it would be this. If God hadn't spoken on the topic, or if he had said that it it wasn't that big of a deal, then you would be justified in reaching that conclusion. You see, his word must be our authority at all times, and if he's spoken on a topic and he's told us how to function, then we must submit ourselves to that. This morning, I contend that God has indeed spoken on the issue of church government, And therefore, we must submit ourselves to his design for our church. Now, church government will always, will always draw comparisons to the American government. It's somewhat unavoidable, but we need to resist these, right? I'm not your senator. Pastor Chris is not your president, as interesting as it might be to see that beard on a $20 bill. (laughs) The, The deacons are not the Supreme Court, 
although it might be pretty cool to see, you know, Rob Walker and Eric Hampton and Bruce Crum in those long judicial robes. Uh, whatever the case, that's, that's not where we're at. We need to allow the scriptures to determine our structure and not our most common point of reference, whether it be the political or the corporate sphere or anything else. We must run every single discussion through the scriptures, even how we functioned in the past, and not merely some version of common sense. Because when, when one person's version of common sense differs from another person's version of common sense, then how do you adjudicate and determine which version should be followed? So my goal this morning is to persuade you from the scriptures that God has indeed given us a specific blueprint for church government. Now, before we, before we jump into these, a couple of books I'd like to recommend to you. The first one right here is called Biblical Eldership by L. Alexander Strauch. Um, it's the recommended book in the bulletin. It's also in the Resource Center. This book is phenomenal. Best resource on the topic of church leadership, church government on the market. Um, we use it all the time in our training at the church as men who may be called into pastoral leadership. Um, highly recommend. Second book, also found in the Resource Center, it's this little brown book called Church Elders by Jeremy Rennie. Um, This one is a little bit more of a charge to pastors on how they ought to lead, but it's still very helpful for all Christians to read and understand this is what God has in store for us. Third resource to recommend is is not a book, but an article by Mark Dever, who is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I posted this article to my Facebook and Twitter profiles this week. Um, Pastor Dever is one of the clearest thinking Baptist minds really in the world today. Um, And church government, church polity, you might say, is one of his specialties. Uh, And so if you have a chance, check that out as well. But but what I really want you to do is to grab at least one of those three resources and and see how can I further refine my thinking according to the scriptures as we go forward here. Whether it be a book or an article, just engage yourself on the word of God. I'll quote from all three of those sources today um, just to give you a sampling um, and to kind of help us walk through, through our discussion, the application of the scriptures. Now, church government is not a topic that has an entire book of the Bible given to it nor does it even have an entire chapter of the Bible given to it. But that doesn't mean it's unimportant. So I'll pull from kind of a sampling of numerous passages. First Peter 5 was already read. Um, so, so as we kind of get things started, what I want to do is I want to read several passages on um, different aspects of church government just to give you a sampling, and then we'll kind of pull from different ones as we go forward throughout the morning. So First Peter 5 was already read, but let's go back. Let's read verses 2, 3, and 4 again. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. <clears throat> not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Hebrews 13 says the following, says, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Titus 1.5, Paul's letter to Pastor Titus, says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Acts 20, this is a famous speech from Paul to the elders at the church of Ephesus, and Paul says the following to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And one more passage to look at before we continue on. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul to Pastor Timothy says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So there's a brief overview of some of these passages that talk about how a church ought to function, what the congregation, what the pastors ought to be doing. Um, Historically speaking, Baptists have embraced a version of church government called congregationalism. Now, congregationalism means a couple of things, a couple different meanings. One is more of an external definition, which you maybe have heard as the autonomy or the independence of the local church. It means how one church relates to another in that each given church has the ability to determine its own beliefs and its own government rather than a bishop or a a pope or some other denominational structure that says, here's how you must operate. It's more of an external sense. Internally, though, congregationalism also has some very specific meanings as far as how the congregation actually rules itself. So, So in this sense, you may hear congregationalism contrasted with elder rule. Now, in the purest sense of a congregationalist system, every single item would be voted on in the church. This version of congregationalism is an absolute train wreck. Can you imagine having to vote on every single purchase of scotch tape or copy paper or anything along those lines? Nobody wants that. On the other end of the spectrum, you might say, is a pure elder rule where there is no voting that takes place among the church. The majority of Baptist history has been trying to find a happy medium between these two systems that's both biblically faithful and practically viable. So you might call the model that we're presenting pastor-led congregationalism. Among the core questions that need to be answered are, what authority do the pastors have? And what authority do the deacons have? And what authority does the congregation have? Now, just to give you a kind of a frame of reference for churches in our area, College Park would embrace more of a congregationalist perspective, whereas Calvary, down in Plainfield, where Pastor Jeff Tagg is at, would be more in the elder rule camp. Neither are the, the purest edition, right? They're, they're trying to find that happy medium. Um, but there's just a couple of churches in our area, just to give you, a, a, like I said, a frame of reference there. Now, Alexander Strauch, author of recommended, recommended book, happens to be in the elder rule camp. But even within that camp, listen to how he answers these questions of authority. Strauch says, The elders are most assuredly answerable to the congregation, and the congregation is responsible to hold its spiritual leaders accountable to faithful adherence to the truth of the word. The congregation is to be directly involved in the public examination and approval of prospective elders and deacons. All members have a voice in assuring that what is done in the church family is done according to Scripture. Notice that it's according to Scripture, according to what the Word says there. So the elder rule author places a heavy emphasis on the elders being accountable, or the pastors, you might say, being accountable to the congregation, even though he doesn't think voting is the best way to do that. He's trying to find that, that happy medium. Jeremy Rennie, author of the other recommended book, 
is more in the congregationalist camp. And it's interesting to listen to how he also frames these issues. Listen to what he says from his congregationalist perspective. Elders manage, lead, admonish, and keep watch over members. Members respond by recognizing them, regarding them highly, and obeying them. So the congregationalist, while affirming church votes, says the role of the members is to recognize, regard, and obey the pastors. Now, we'll revisit this discussion of, of elder rule and congregationalism a little bit later once we've looked at a few more passages. But for now, there's kind of a, a zoomed out larger point I want us to see, and that's that there is no perfect foolproof system. Because whatever system you embrace, you're going to have sinners making decisions, right? Now, and, and the other thing on that is it means you can always devise a hypothetical that might derail a given system, right? It's completely possible. Um, so what, what this forces us to do is not to just throw up our hands and say, well, well, gosh, that doesn't matter, right? No, no, that's not, that's not what we ought to do. We ought to remember that God is building his church, not us. Remember that God is sovereign, not us. We ought to commit ourselves to searching the scriptures and following exactly what they say and leaving the rest to God. So we should care about church polity or church governance, kind of similar terms there, because God cares about it and God has given us a blueprint for it. Beyond that, I think there's at least two highly practical reasons why we ought to care about church government and why God has given us these directives. The first one is this. It can be a catalyst for discipleship. What do I mean by that? In our church governance, if we explain and make a big deal of the role of each member, here's what God has for you within his church to expand his kingdom then that actually trains the members in what they are supposed to do and helps them to be better disciples of Christ. And if you had a chance to read the new constitution, you'll see that we've significantly expanded the, the section on membership for this very reason. We think biblical church governance is a catalyst for discipleship. Secondly, there's this aspect of legacy. You see, two of the quickest paths to destruction are bad leadership and bad debt, right? And so, in looking at the legacy and the long-term gospel witness in this town, and according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we'll continue to vote on all new pastors. Right? Make sure you don't have bad leadership getting in place. Now, on the debt side of things, there's no scriptural mandate to vote about debt being incurred. But we think it's wise and it's prudent to safeguard the church against those things so that the new constitution has added in votes on any debt the church would take on as well as the annual budget, which is the same as the, as the prior constitution. The, the last thing, the fourth thing there would be a vote on is according, according to Galatians 1, 8, and 9, which we'll look at in a couple of minutes, but any doctrinal change, the, the congregation needs to uh, be involved in and, and vote as well there. All of that leading towards long-term stability, the legacy of the church. Now, like I said, if you've had a chance to read that constitution, you'll notice that there are also lay pastors mentioned there. By lay pastors, we simply mean pastors that are not paid by the church. Um, this has been pretty normal throughout church history, to be honest, but we understand that at Bethesda, it's, it's somewhat new concept. So why go this route, maybe you've asked. Well, there, there's several reasons. One, we're commanded in Scripture to constantly be training up new men who are pastors and teachers to lead God's flock. 
If you're taking notes, you can jot down Titus 1.5, 2 Timothy 2.2 as some prime examples of this. Raising up lay pastors is actually obedient to Scripture. Secondly, why have lay pastors? Well, there's more stability that's provided. You see, statistically, statistically speaking, paid pastors stay at a given church roughly three to five years. But guys who are lay pastors have got a family and they've got a job that tends to anchor them in a town for a longer period of time. And so it provides a more stable base of leadership for the church, again, looking at the legacy in the long term. Finally, having lay pastors can help to avoid a conflict of interest in certain financial matters that came up. And so for a lot of reasons, the the legacy of a church is enhanced by having lay pastors. There's been considerable investment from God's people at this church over the last 167 years. And the time is coming, the reality is the time is coming for all of us where we will pass into eternity and somebody else is going to be stewarding our investment here. Thus, we must think about legacy in our church governance. Now, all of that being said, there's three basic roles in Scripture that are laid out within a church in the way it functions. They are the pastors, the deacons, and the congregation. So we'll just walk through each of those this morning. Um, pastors first receive the most attention in Scripture of the three groups. There are three whole books dedicated to pastors, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which are often called the pastoral epistles because they are written to pastors. Pastors must be spiritually qualified men, and there's, a, there's one competency requirement. They must be able to teach. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we already covered this in the Titus series, but I'll just point out, um, if you want to look at those qualifications, they're listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Next, Scripture says there ought to be a plurality of pastors. There ought to be multiple pastors. Now, this has historically been true of Baptists, although in the last 50 or 60 years, it's become popular to have what's often known as a CEO model. The CEO model, you've got one guy at the top, and there may be associate pastors, but they end up being kind of more like the CEO's minions than they do actually pastors that are shepherding the flock of God. This model goes fine if you have a good CEO who is humble and listens to others and defers. But when you lose that guy who will listen to others and he becomes power-hungry and domineering and authoritative, this is a disaster. Now, currently, this is how our Constitution is framed, where one guy has the ability to fire on a whim whenever he wants. It's not healthy, and nor is it what the Scriptures teach. You see, there are 20 different references in the Scriptures to Christian elders, and all 20 of them are in the plural. There's meant to be a plurality of leadership leading God's church. In the book I recommended, Alexander Strauch devotes an entire chapter to this question of plurality, and his conclusion here is well stated. He says, It was never our Lord's will for the local church to be controlled by one individual. The concept of the pastor is the lonely, trained professional, the sacred person over the church who can never really become part of the congregation, is utterly unscriptural. So you might ask then, well, is is the idea of a lead pastor, is is that wrong? Do the scriptures mandate some sort of groupthink where nobody's really leading the group and it just kind of, you just see how the wind blows? No, I, I don't think that's the case. If you look back at the New Testament again, you'll see that Peter clearly rose to the top as a leader among leaders. The same could be said of Paul and the churches that he pastored. 
Um, and so what, what you see is a system that may be called first among equals or a leader among leaders. So while there may be a difference between pastors in areas of giftedness, in training, experience, or Bible knowledge, all pastors are co-equals. All pastors should have an equal voice at the discussion table. Now, because of the way the current Constitution is framed, where the, the senior pastor has the ability to fire at any point he wants, it, act, it could act as a heavy deterrent. Now, fortunately, Pastor Chris is not that way and listens and defers and seeks input on a regular basis. But if you were to get a bad senior pastor, it could go poorly. Um, so in the system we're proposing, a lead pastor would be responsible to lead the pastors, the deacons, Bethesda Christian schools, but his vote is no more significant than any other pastor. So pastors should be spiritually qualified men who are able to teach. There should also be a plurality of pastors, not a CEO-type model. Now, to the job of pastors, what do the scriptures say there? Number one, pastors are to protect the flock of God, to protect the flock of God. Look at Acts 20, 28 through 30. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Pastors must always be on the lookout for false teaching, and they must refute it. Paul's words in Acts 20 are particularly poignant because he says there's significant danger for false teaching within the church itself, not just from outside the church. Second job of pastors, feed the flock of God. 1 Timothy 3.2 says, Therefore an overseer must be able to teach. Then in the next chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul again says, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Faithfully feeding God's people may be the most significant task given to pastors. It just might be that. When the flock is well fed, they will be equipped to live on mission and to follow the leadership of the pastors. And as the Snickers advertisements have reminded us, you're not you when you're hungry. So the third job of pastors, first, protect the flock of God. Second, feed the flock of God. Third, lead the flock of God. Lead them. First Timothy 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well, leadership being spoken of there, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Additionally, pastors are called overseers four times in the New Testament. First Timothy and Titus go on to refer to pastors as managers and stewards. Hebrews 13 says the congregation should submit to and obey the leadership of the pastors. So the third job is to lead the flock of God. Fourth, fourth aspect of a pastor's job description is not so much what he is going, should be doing now, but what will come later, and it is that pastors will stand before God with greater scrutiny. They'll stand before God with greater scrutiny. James 3 speaks to this, as does Hebrews 13, 17, which, which we read previously, but we'll read again. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, and here's the part I, I highlight, as those who will have to give an account. 
for every soul that they watched over. And were they faithful in doing that or were they not? That's the overview of pastors. They're to be spiritually qualified men who are able to teach. There should be a plurality of elders in each church. And in each church, pastors are charged to uh, protect the flock of God, feed the flock of God, and lead the flock of God. And because of that responsibility, God says that he will hold each pastor to a stricter judgment. That's the first role in the church, the pastor. Second role in the local church is that of deacons. Now, we're told only a tiny little bit about deacons in the scriptures, far less than the pastors or, frankly, even the congregation. The understanding within many Baptist churches that the deacons are the board of directors who actually run the church is simply not something you'll find in the scriptures. For time considerations, I'll simply point out that the qualifications for deacons are listed in 1 Timothy 3, and deacons are to lead in serving the needs of the church. For further explanation, I'd I'd direct you back to Pastor Chris's sermons from the Titus series last year, as well as the article we wrote, Clarity on Deacons, and the other article that was titled, Clarity on Church Governance. Finally, the third role within the church is that of the congregation. The congregation possesses an essential role in church polity. And so as we examine the scriptures, you'll see two general expectations for all believers— And then four specific commands as far as decision-making in the life of a local church. The two general expectations of all believers. The first one is this. Carry out the Great Commission. Let me say this again. Carrying out the Great Commission is not primarily the job of the pastors. It's the job of the congregation. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 is abundantly clear here. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Do you hear that? The pastor's job is to equip the people to do the work. There are times when the most biblical thing a pastor can do is stop leading a ministry so that somebody else will rise up and take that and run with it. Acts 8 picks up this same idea and builds on it. Acts 8.1 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now by itself, it doesn't tell you the whole picture, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and everybody else, the rest of the congregation, took off because of the persecution. Then, in Acts 11, we see how this actually started the most significant missionary movement in history. Listen to Acts 11.19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now Antioch is significant there. So back up a second. You're in Jerusalem. You have significant persecution arise. The apostles stay. Everybody else takes off. And they go as far as Antioch, further further north which was a significant port city that was called the cradle of Christianity because from Antioch, the gospel launched out into the entire known world. And this amazing missionary movement started because the lay people were fulfilling their role in the Great Commission and taking the gospel to all corners of the earth. Antioch is the city where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their famous missionary journeys. And there it went to the entire Roman Empire. And how did it get there? Because the congregation took the gospel out and shared it as they were going on a daily basis. So the first expectation of all 
believers is that you would fulfill the Great Commission. The second one is that you would join a local church. Well, you won't find a command that reads, thou shalt join a church in the New Testament. When we carefully read it, we see church membership implied all over the place. See, at the end of the day, church membership is a gracious gift from God that is for our good. Now, as soon as I say that, in the West, with the way we don't like institutions, um, I, I understand that saying joining a church, you ought to join a church, can be sort of intimidating, maybe a little bit scary. Um, but let me just share a couple of passages that sort of imply this and speak to it. Uh, Matthew 18 speaks of church discipline, whereby you place yourself under the God-ordained authority of the local church. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2 make this exact same point that Matthew 18 is making. These passages really don't make sense except against the backdrop of I've submitted myself to the leadership of a church and I've joined that church. Acts 2 speaks of a shared life in nearly every aspect of life. Joining a church changes your identity and that you become part of a larger community and you commit to serving their needs as they commit to serve yours. Hebrews 10 speaks of meeting together regularly, calling one another to do good works and encouraging one another. And who is this referring to? Just random people that you can find singing a praise song somewhere in the city? No, this only makes sense within the context of a recognized group that is covenanted to do life together. In other words, those who have joined a church. Now, Christians will often complain about singles who want all the benefits of marriage without the commitment. Unfortunately, many of us have embraced the same sort of thinking with respect to church membership. We want all the perks of being in the family of God, being loved by all the saints, but we still resist the commitment and submission to authority that comes from joining a church. If that's you this morning, I'll just hang out in the front and let's have a conversation afterwards um, and see what maybe that next step ought to look like in your discipleship. So the two general expectations of all believers is fulfill the Great Commission and join a local church. But as far as decision-making in the local church, there are four specific tasks given to the congregation. Certainly there are other commands for Christian living, but here we're focusing on the tasks with respect to decision-making in the church. You'll notice the input seems more like a, a process of a family getting together um, than it does a political vote. Again, this, this doesn't mean voting is wrong. It just means that we should understand church votes in a much different uh, light than we would political votes. So what are these four tasks given to the congregation as far as decision-making? The first one is this, examine leaders. Examine leaders. First Timothy 3 lists all the qualifications of pastors, presumably so the church can know if someone is qualified. Acts 15.22 will be on the screen says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. It seemed good to the whole church. They'd worked through this together. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, how does that speak to the congregation? That seems like a false teacher command, right? Who does Paul hold accountable that the false teachers were there in the first place? He holds the, the congregation accountable. They had a role in bringing them in, and it was, sure, the false teachers to be blamed, 
but the congregation is also held responsible there in 2 Timothy 4. So the first task is to examine leaders. Secondly, examine doctrine. I told you before we'd look at Galatians 1, 8, and 9, and, and now we're there. Listen to what Paul says to the church at, churches, I should say, at Galatia. He says, But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Church, examine the doctrine you're being taught. Acts 17 speaks to the same, same idea. Verses 10 and 11 it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The church is examining the doctrine on a daily basis, and those in Berea were commended for it. 2 Timothy 4 was previously read, but it's the same concept there of members needing to examine doctrine. The third task given to members of the church, as far as decision-making is considered, is to examine members. Examine members. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, outlines the process of church discipline. Let's read it here. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5 takes the command of Matthew 18 and explains what this church discipline process looked like at the church of Corinth. Then, in 2 Corinthians 2, we see wonderful news that the man disciplined in 1 Corinthians 5 had actually repented of his sins and had turned back and was following Jesus again. Look at what 2 Corinthians 2 says. He says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Notice, it was the member's job to recognize, is this person living in unrepentant sin, or are they not, and to take action accordingly. The fourth task given to church members with respect to decision-making in the local church is to obey and submit to the leadership. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13 echoed this same sentiment. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Quite frankly, this is the part that's so difficult for us in the West. We want to have our say in everything. But biblically speaking, the congregation is called to examine doctrine, members, and pastors. Beyond that, the congregation is commanded to to submit to the leadership. The questions to ask are, is this doctrine in accordance with the scriptures? If it is, the members have no biblical grounds to oppose it. 
Is this pastor qualified according to the standards of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? If he is, the members have no biblical grounds to vote against him. Is this member living in unrepentant sin? If they are, the members have no biblical grounds to allow them to continue in membership. And similarly, has this member turned from their sin? And if so, the members have no biblical grounds for continuing to exclude them from the assembly. Now, obviously, this isn't always how church votes go, right? Everybody has seen that go poorly at one point in time or another. But when members start voting on preferences rather than what the Bible says, we end up with an anti-Christian expression of Western individualism rather than anything found in the Scriptures. Generally speaking, pastors will struggle to get buy-in, lead people along, and get leadership consensus. And similarly, church members will often struggle to recognize that their opportunities to vote are not opportunities to express their opinions or preferences. Now, as I contrasted quotes from a congregationalist perspective and an elder rule perspective earlier, let me revisit this and kind of show you some contrasting perspectives on how people try and flesh this out. So Alexander Strauch, coming from an elder rule perspective that would not uh, embrace church votes, would say this. Elders must inoculate themselves against aloofness, secrecy, or independently seeking their own direction. Godly elders desire to involve every member of the body in the joy of living together as the family of God. This requires a great deal of free and open communication between the elders and the congregation. This is exactly why we've taken this process so slow as pastors. We're doing our best to be methodical, fully transparent, and over-communicate with the entire congregation. We felt that taking a few weeks to explain the why of the changes would be more helpful than simply releasing all the changes at one time. We felt that writing close to 30 pages in articles would be helpful in giving clarity for how God had led us to this point. And more than that, we specifically sought out hot-button issues that might generate questions. It's like, man, why are they doing this? Um, We wanted to make sure nobody was surprised with anything they found in the documents. But once we committed to that route, we also realized that a tiered release of information would be more helpful. After all, if we were to release 30 pages of explanatory articles, along with a 15-page constitution, it would look like we're putting nearly 50 pages of information out there to confuse people so you couldn't see it all at the same time. So we tried to take it slow. Trying to confuse people couldn't be further from the truth. So this is the challenge for pastors. Work to bring people along. Strive to achieve buy-in. As 1 Peter 5 would say, don't be domineering. But on the other hand, the challenge for the congregation is to recognize the biblical limits of their authority. There's a tendency to see church votes as an opportunity to express your own opinion or preference, which simply isn't a biblical view of church government or congregational involvement. Mark Dever, coming from the congregationalist perspective, says it this way, The elders are the steering wheel of the church. The congregation doesn't steer. The congregation is more like the emergency brake. The role of the congregation is to affirm sound doctrine, spiritually qualified leaders, and members living for Jesus. Voting against matters not specifically defined here simply isn't found in the Bible. Now, one of the things you'll notice in the proposed Constitution is that anonymous votes won't be counted. This flows right out of the analogy as the church is the family of God. 
By removing anonymous votes, it moves us towards greater accountability rather than hiding behind a nameless ballot. It also pushes us to resolve conflict in a biblical manner by going and talking to the person with whom we disagree rather than talking to our favorite gossip group. Nobody's going to come kick you out of the church or do anything crazy like that if you vote no at some point. It's it's not going to happen. But I will say this, if you haven't talked to a pastor about why you think a given change is against what the scriptures teach, you may get a call from somebody who wants to know why you thought it was so unbiblical, right? And that would only be the logical thing. If, if I know that, if I see a no vote and I think somebody thinks this is totally against scripture, it would be negligent not to follow up and say, what do you see there that's against the scriptures, You'll also notice in the new constitution that there's a heavy emphasis on congregational input. As pastors, we think this is incredibly important. Incredibly important. Elder rule says give the congregation a voice, but not a vote. Congregationalism focuses on input through a vote. But what we're saying is this, why make it an either-or type of thing? Oftentimes there might be option A and option B on the table, But the best option is actually not being considered. It's option C or D or otherwise. And by involving more people in the conversation, you actually find the best option out there. And furthermore, the process of vote along with voice is exactly what we've used in the process of these changes to date. We've literally made hundreds of revisions over the last 10 months on the basis of feedback from various people in the congregation. The beautiful thing is that In the last couple of weeks, we really haven't received many suggestions for things to tweak. And I think part of the reason there is the documents that were released already reflected such a heavy voice from the congregation in the first place. Now, as we start to conclude, I want you to look back at your Bibles, look at 1 Peter chapter 5 with me. It's where we started out. 1 Peter chapter 5, look back there. Look at verse 4 with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. It says... And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And who is the chief shepherd? Uh, It's Jesus. He's the pastor of this church. None of the guys who are the under-shepherds right now are the true pastor. It's Pastor Jesus. This is his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's not any of ours. It's his. And why do we bother taking our time on a Sunday morning to unpack church government? Why do we do that? Because it's ordained by the chief shepherd as a means of sending out the message of salvation that only he brings. That's why we do it. So for any pastors in the room or any that may be listening online, Jesus shows you how to lead the church where he has stationed you. He didn't fight for his own way. He came and served. When his disciples clamored for greater authority, he told them the first would be last. Jesus had every right to demand a place to stay, royal banquets, and a plush wardrobe. Yet he didn't do that. He sought those who were pushed to the margins, and he served them at great cost to himself. Pastors, lead the flock of God in this way. And for those here who are not pastors, Jesus also shows you how to lovingly submit to authority for the sake of the advance of the gospel. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, looked ahead to immense suffering and looked for a different way to proceed. He begged the Father for another way, yet there was no other way. And so Jesus willingly submitted 
every single personal preference, including his very personal preference to live rather than die for the sake of the gospel. Perhaps some of the proposed changes will be difficult to digest at various points. But are you willing to follow the example of Jesus and set aside your preferences for the sake of the gospel? So as we go to communion, remember Jesus. Remember how he led. Remember how he served. Remember how much he gave up to serve those who would treat their leader horribly. Remember how he died. Remember how he did not fight for a single preference of his own. And perhaps most importantly, remember that apart from his death on the cross, you would still be destined for eternity in hell. Communion is for anyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. You do not need to be a member here to take communion. However, communion is not for those who have not given their lives to Jesus. Communion can't save you. It's merely an opportunity to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the ways that you have loved us, that you have led us, that you have served us. Thank you, Father, that you've given us the church as your designed institution to send your message of salvation out to all peoples. God, may you guide our thinking. May you shape our thinking to be more in line with the Scriptures than it's ever been before. God, may you draw us to yourself, and as we look on who you are and what you did for us, may you compel us to submit to you and to serve you and to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.